John chapter 6 spends a considerable amount of time talking about food. Is there anybody else besides me that enjoys food? Yes, I, uh, this might be a terrible way to start because now you're all thinking about where you're going to lunch. But uh, I, I, I enjoy a good meal. When people ask me, what's your favorite kind of food? I typically just respond, food. I don't discriminate. Discrimination's bad, right? We all know this. I don't care if it's Mexican food, Chinese food, Italian food, uh, fried food, frozen food, fast food. I don't care. I just enjoy it. Food is delicious. And if you've ever shared a meal with me, um, you know that I'm a super slow eater because I want to savor the flavor as long as I can. I take my time, I chew a lot because food is simply delicious. So imagine my surprise in college when I came across the biblical concept of the spiritual disciplines that includes this thing called fasting. I was enjoying the Bible study. I was having no problem with uh, the importance of prayer, uh, the importance of service or of Bible study. And then I got to the section where it said you're supposed to like give up food and not eat. And I thought this must be a mistake. Um, I tried to ignore it. I tried to suppress it. I tried to pretend like it didn't exist, that there was no such thing as fasting. But the Holy Spirit bothered me enough to where I felt like, okay, I, I should probably give this a shot. So for an, a semester at Willamette, I skipped lunch. So I would leave class, and rather than going to the cafeteria, I would go to the chapel, and I would pray. And I was fairly certain that God was going to reward this unbelievable act of sacrifice by allowing me to hear his audible voice, maybe give me an angelic vision. I was pretty sure he was impressed with me. That never materialized. Um, but I did learn a lesson. It's a pretty simple lesson, but it became profound over time. Here's the lesson I learned during that semester. When I get hungry, my body lets me know. My stomach begins to growl. I get a little lightheaded. My demeanor can become a little less convivial and pleasant and maybe get a little snippy or ragey. Now, I've been around some of you who have some of the same hanger issues, um, but, but I learned very obviously and quickly that my body tells me when I'm hungry. That feeling never went away all semester. The hunger pangs were there almost every day, and I was very aware of it. Now, over time, here's the important part of the lesson. When I skipped a meal, my body let me know. But when I skipped time with God, my body didn't react at all. And that bothered me. I couldn't go a couple hours without food before I had an actual physiological reaction. But I could go days without prayer or reading my Bible. And I felt absolutely nothing. So I began to pray that God would give me the same physiological reaction to skipping time with him as my body naturally gave me when I skipped a meal. 
See, God built hunger into us to remind us to eat food. And that's a good thing because if you don't eat food, you die. We need food to nourish our physical bodies. So God created in us a warning system of sorts that alerts us when it's time to refuel. And I believe the same is true in our spiritual lives. I believe that there is a hunger inside every human being that can only be satisfied by God himself. Jesus knew that there was this dynamic interplay, this connection between physical food and spiritual food. So being a master teacher, he uses bread as a teaching tool to illustrate his point. In John chapter 6, right before the passage we read, at the beginning of John 6, we see that miraculous event where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. And Jesus didn't just give them a snack. He didn't just give them enough to tide them over. He gave them enough to fill their stomachs, and then there were 12 baskets full left over. In this passage, Jesus makes reference to the time in the wilderness period when he provided manna for the nation of Israel. He provided food for them because they needed it to live and to endure the journey. And here, in this passage, he calls himself the bread of life. Let's look at verse 35 because I think this is the most critical verse in this entire passage. Verse 35 says, Then Jesus declared... I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Seven times in John's gospel, John highlights Jesus using this phrase, this term, I am. Now in English, it's no big deal. It's no big deal for us to start an introductory sentence with the words, I am. It's very normal. Hi, I am Jeff. Hello, I am uh, Sierra's father. Hello, I am one of the pastors at Salem First Baptist. That is no big deal for us to start a sentence in English with the words, I am. But I'll tell you what, it was a really big deal for a first century Jew to hear this phrase, I am, because it was an intentional move by Jesus to have them look back, to draw on their memories into the Old Testament where God himself used this term when he was having a conversation with Moses at the burning bush. Remember that story? Moses is out hanging out with his sheeps one day and he sees a bush that's on fire but not being consumed. Moses goes over to the bush and he has a conversation with God and it goes a little something like this. God says, hey Moses, you know all those Hebrews that are enslaved in Egypt? Uh, you're going to lead them out of captivity and into the promised land. And understandably, Moses says, uh, God, that's a little daunting. Makes me a little nervous. Uh, under whose authority am I working? Would I go to the people? Who should I tell them sent me? Listen to what God says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, grammatically, that sentence is a disaster. 
I am has sent you makes no sense grammatically. But theologically, this is an imperative passage where God is essentially giving Moses his very name. The phrase I am is a Hebrew form of the name Yahweh. Yahweh was such a holy, revered name to to the Jews that they wouldn't even say it out loud. They were afraid their tongue would turn black. God uses this term, I am, to tell Moses, I am the self-existent one. I am the one who has always existed. I am self-sufficient. I am God. Go to the Israelites and tell him, God sent you. That ought to work. So when Jesus uses this exact same phrase, I am the bread of life, he was claiming to be God. Seven different times, Jesus uses this term, and John highlights. This is the first time that Jesus uses it. And why did he choose bread? I am the bread of life. Why not pick something fancier? I mean, he could have said, I am the filet mignon of life. I am the lobster tail of life. I am the caviar. He could have picked something way cooler than bread. He calls himself the bread of life. And by the way, um, Jesus is totally gluten-free. So if anyone is nervous about being drawn toward the bread of life, don't worry, he's gluten-free. Why did Jesus use bread? Because bread is the most common source of food in the world. Go anywhere on vacation. And you are going to find some sort of bread. You walk into a restaurant anywhere in the world, there's going to be some sort of bread served. They may call it a baguette or a bagel or banana bread. Whatever the case, they're going to serve you bread. And you may now already be thinking of your favorite bread places. We've got Great Harvest Delicious. We've got Olive Garden breadsticks. Oh, who says no to those? How about the, how about the best little roadhouse? Oh, those heavenly little honey butter. Oh, oh let's pray. Let's go. I mean, who doesn't like bread? But you want to know what's interesting? Is in Jesus' day, bread was the main course. Meat was the side dish. We typically focus on the, on the entree when we go to a restaurant. And the bread is just something they bring to you to kind of whet your appetite. But in Jesus' day, to Jesus' audience, bread was the main course. You see what Jesus is doing? He wants to be the main course. He chooses this universal meal. Bread was something that everyone had access to. It wasn't something that was just reserved for the rich, nor was it something that was to be sloughed off on the poor. Both princes and paupers had access to bread. Bread is a staple food that universally feeds the world. And Jesus uses this ordinary food to teach an extraordinary lesson. And here it is. Eat bread and you'll get hungry again. But nourish yourself with the bread of life and you will be eternally satisfied. So how does Jesus make this point? He does it by having a difficult conversation with his followers. It is now the next day after Jesus had fed the 5,000. He has crossed the Sea of Galilee and he is now continuing on his journey. Well, the crowd wakes up and Jesus is gone. So they walk around the lake 
around the sea to get to Jesus. And they approached him with some questions. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, this is totally speculation, but I wonder, I I sincerely wonder if the crowd was expecting Jesus to say something like this. Well, it is so good to see you guys. I am so impressed that you went to such great lengths to seek me out. I mean, that must have been a long, hard journey. You are dedicated, committed followers. And in fact, I am so glad you're here because I'm trying to build a church and now you can help me become the first mega church in all of Israel. I'm so glad to see you guys. What amazing people you are. I wonder if they were kind of expecting Jesus to be thrilled to see them. But they didn't get that. Oh, Jesus knew they were hungry for something, but they came with the wrong motives. Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, but not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus knew that they weren't really pursuing him. They were pursuing their next meal. They were just like me sitting in that chapel at Willamette University, sitting there with a growling stomach, wondering when do I get to eat next? See, the crowd wanted more bread to satisfy their hunger, and Jesus knew it. So he called them out, and he rebukes them for having a physical appetite that overpowered any sort of spiritual appetite. You see, they were willing to trade a full stomach for an empty soul. They had a craving that led them to Jesus, but their motivation was all wrong. They wanted to satisfy their flesh. They wanted their physical needs to be met. They weren't motivated by a desire to know more about who Jesus was. They just wanted to see what they could get out of him. So Jesus just calls them out and he says, you know what, you're not following me because you were so amazed by that miraculous sign I gave you. That didn't stir in you a spiritual hunger to come pursue me and learn more from me. All that happened yesterday was you liked the meal that I gave you, so you hunted me down to see if I had any more bread, and I'm not having it. They had a craving that led them to Jesus, but their motivations were all wrong. You see, friends, our cravings will always naturally drive us to satisfy our appetite. If you're craving salty, you'll find a bag of chips in the pantry. If you're craving sweet, chocolate always delivers. If you're craving attention, a few likes on your social media page will do the trick. And if you're craving an escape from the pressures of life, drugs and alcohol will take you to an altered state that'll numb your reality temporarily. But carnal cravings will always leave you feeling empty. Because there's no lasting value in chasing after the next meal or the next adrenaline rush or the next compliment. God has created in each one of us a longing to be filled, to be satisfied, to be at rest from our striving. It's an instinct that he put in us in order to draw us into a life-giving relationship 
with him. It's natural that we will always strive to satisfy our longings. But if we're not careful, we'll fill it with the wrong things. If Jesus wants us to pursue spiritual things, the enemy is going to entice us to do just the opposite. He will put temporary passing pleasures in front of us, hoping that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life will lead us down the wrong path, distracting us from the only thing that will truly satisfy our deepest longing, that being Jesus, the bread of life. So Jesus warns them, do not work for food that spoils. You guys, quit seeking after temporal, physical pleasures. You were full yesterday. Your tummies were satisfied yesterday and you woke up the next day hungry. Again, quit working for food that spoils. Because like bread, the attention that you crave will get stale. Like bread, the pleasure you seek will be here today and gone tomorrow. And like bread, the wealth you seek to accumulate over time will rot, spoil, and decay. Jesus knew that the motives of the crowd were impure. They were carnal, not spiritual. So he told them, I'm offering you something much better than bread. He continues by saying, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, that which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus offers himself as the means by which we can find lasting satisfaction. Jesus challenges their motives. He calls them out. He rebukes them. And the people seem to respond. They begin to ask some follow-up questions. Verse 28. Well, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that you require of us? Verse 30. What sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do for us? Again, at first glance, these questions seem really good. They, they seem inquisitive and eager to learn. But again, they're asking the wrong questions. The crowd continues to focus on the physical works that they ought to do and the visible signs that Jesus would perform for them. And in the process, they ironically expose their own spiritual blindness. They're asking a bunch of questions without realizing the answer is standing right in front of them. They seem ready and willing to do the hard work, but God isn't looking for hard workers. He's looking for hungry believers, seekers that are pursuing him with pure motives, longing and desiring to be in the presence of the bread of life, not seeking to receive more bread to fill their stomachs. God isn't looking for hard workers. He's looking for hungry believers. Working hard to please Jesus sounds like a noble task, doesn't it? For the first century Jew, this was deeply ingrained in their way of life. They worked hard to honor the law because that's all they knew. 
So Jesus tries to reorient their focus off of the rigid law that was filled of all the things that they needed to do in order to earn God's favor and to reorient off of works and onto his very presence. He wanted them to have fervent belief in him, not a list of activities that would somehow cause him to look upon them favorably. God is saying, I want you to partake of me. Quit patting yourself on the back for walking around a big lake. Quit looking for another sign that will finally convince you to pursue me. Just partake of me. Dwell in my presence. Feed off of every word that I want to share with you. Quit working so hard to earn my approval. As I was thinking about this passage, I reflected on a day that I tried to teach um, my firstborn how to float. Josiah was swimming and he wanted to learn how to float and I thought, well, I'm not a certified swim instructor, but I think I could pull this off. I think I can teach a kid how to float. I mean, floating's easy. So I braced his back and had him up on the surface of the water and I said, Josiah, now just put your arms out and just relax. Pulled my hands away. And you would have thought I threw a herd of cats in the middle of that pool. The splashing and the hissing and the spitting and the flailing was unbelievable. So I, so I, I picked him back up and I said, Josiah, so, come on, come on, just relax, calm down. Stop trying to hold yourself up. Stop trying to, to push yourself up on the water. Just let the water do what it's designed to do. It'll, it'll make you float. Just, just relax. Hold my hands away and more flailing, spitting and wailing and crying. So the third time I didn't pick him back up. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I, I do think, honestly, I, I, I do think I lost my composure. I mean, I have to admit, I, I think I very loudly said, stop trying so hard. Stop trying so hard. Let the water, do what it's designed to do. And I think Jesus had that same feeling, that same instinct with the crowd that kept flailing and flailing and and trying to, to hold themselves up and to buoy themselves with their good works. Then Jesus says, stop it. Would you just relax and look at me? I'm right in front of your face. Let me do what I was designed to do. I have come that you might have life and life to the full. I will satisfy you if you would stop flailing. Jesus came to satisfy them. The crowd did work hard to seek Jesus out. They did take a long walk They did seem willing to do the hard work. They did have inquiring minds. But Jesus didn't come into the world simply to provide bread. He came to be the bread. Jesus wasn't interested in filling their stomachs with bread that would satisfy them for a short time. He wanted to provide the people with food that would satisfy them forever. Yes, they were hungry but they were hungry for the wrong thing. What'd they ask? What can you do for me, Jesus? 
What can you provide for me, Jesus? I'll become a missionary, Jesus, if you heal my grandma. Prove to me, show me a sign, Jesus, and if you do, then I'll put my faith in you. Show me a sign, and then I'll follow you, Jesus. Has your prayer life ever sounded something like that? Mine has. If I'm not careful, I can get really selfish in my prayer time. Sometimes my prayers sound more like wish lists. They are filled with all the things I want Jesus to do for me so that once my prayers are answered, once my wishes are granted, then I will be satisfied. But you know when I really feel most satisfied after praying? It's those times where my list seems to fade into the background because Jesus takes me to a place in my prayer time that I had never planned to go. My favorite times of prayer are when I let Jesus dictate the focus and the direction of my prayer. And it's almost as if he becomes the wish list. And I just sit and enjoy him. He becomes the bread that nourishes my soul. And I feel satisfied. Verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Please notice that Jesus didn't say, I will give you the bread of life. Please notice that Jesus doesn't say, I will show you the way to find the bread of life. Because other religious leaders do that. Other religious leaders will promise to show you the way to enlightenment, to show you the path toward nirvana. Other religious leaders will show you a system that if followed properly, will lead you to their deity. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is an exclusive truth claim. By saying, I am the truth, I am the, the bread of life, he is saying, I am the only one. I am not one of many options. He is claiming to be God, and if he's claiming to be God, then that excludes everyone and everything else. Have you ever come across a person who, who gets a little grouchy about the exclusivity of Christianity? It's exclusive. Don't let that bother you when someone wrinkles their nose and says, Christianity is too exclusive. It is. There's one path. But Christianity is also the most inclusive religion on the planet because all are invited to respond to the bread of life. If Jesus is the bread of life, then nothing else can be. Jesus says, I am the path. I am the way. I am the system. And I am the destination. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not L. Ron Hubbard. I am the bread that will provide you eternal life. And I'm right here, right now. I'm right in front of you. Believe in me. 
Respond to me and you will be satisfied. Jesus has a difficult conversation with the crowd. He challenges their motives. He he tells them that the questions they're asking are all wrong. He identifies the fact that their, their cravings and their appetites have led them down the wrong path. And difficult conversations are only good if they lead to life change. I had a difficult conversation with my doctor, Christmas of 2018. My doctor said, Jeff, you've been craving all the wrong kinds of food. You have been eating the wrong foods. Your your desires and your hunger and your appetite has led you to the kinds of food that gave you a really short-term payoff, but they came with long-term consequences. You see, Jeff, you've been eating way too many sugar-filled foods. You've been drinking way too much pop, Jeff. You're overweight, and you now have type 2 diabetes. Thank you. I'm okay. My hunger and my cravings were misplaced. I was eating the wrong kinds of food. I wasn't nourishing myself with the right things, and there were consequences to those poor choices. And my doctor had a difficult conversation with me, not because he hates me, but because he cares about me. And I needed to change my patterns. I needed to look for different kinds of food that would actually nourish me. And I had to change my behavior. Jesus didn't rebuke them because he hated them. He rebuked them because he loved them. And he wanted them to know that their cravings were misplaced. Their their temporal pleasures were going to have long-term consequences. So change your hunger patterns. Crave spiritual food. Because that will have a positive, eternal effect on you. Jesus, because of the hard conversations, he got through to them. The people finally got to the point where they're like, okay, okay, what do we have to do? Give us this food. We want it. What do we have to do? Jesus' response to them was pretty shocking. He says, okay, if you want the bread of life, you must consume me. You must consume me. Did you know that the early Christians were actually accused of being cannibals? Because Jesus didn't say, consume me. That's my word. You know what Jesus really said? If you want eternal life, if you want the bread of life that will give you eternal satisfaction, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, he didn't mean that literally, right? Again, if, if, if anyone ever asks you, do you take the Bible literally? Please say no. Just say no. You're going to have this instinct to like defend the Bible. Yeah, 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 I do. No, you don't. Because if you took the Bible literally, we would all have one hand and one eyeball. And we would be cannibals. That'd be weird. If you want to say, ask them, do you mean do I believe every word in the Bible is actually true? Yeah but I take the parts literally that are meant to be taken literally and the parts that are meant figuratively, figuratively. 
Jesus says, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What he meant is, you must partake of me. You must consume what I have to offer. He calls the people to believe in him and they will be satisfied. To believe is an active word that calls for a response. You can walk into a bakery and stand there and just take in all the wonderful fragrant aromas of baking bread. You can check out the assortment of all the different kinds of breads that the baker has offered for sale. You can even appreciate the beautifully braided breads. And you can marvel at the the perfect golden brown color that the baker has managed to achieve on his famous sourdough. But you will never experience bread until you eat it. You will never know what bread tastes like if you only observe it from afar. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is he who takes refuge in him. Jesus is saying, taste and see that I am good. Bread is nothing more than a metaphor. Forget the bread. Partake of me. Believe in me and you will be satisfied. If you have been a window shopper your whole life, if you have been observing Jesus like you would observe bread in a bakery, but you've never actually partaken, you've never actually tasted the bread of life, I'd like to invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good this morning. You can take care of that today. You can make the decision to stop being a casual observer and you can partake of the bread of life today by choosing to put your faith and your belief in Jesus Christ, the one who came to give his life so that you might experience eternal life. I'll be down here at the end of the service. Come on down. If you are a follower of Christ, I want you to simply consider what you are hungry for today. Are you hungry for what Jesus can do for you? Or are you hungry for what he has already done? He has come that you might have abundant life. Why are you following Jesus? What is motivating you to continue walking with him? Are you looking for him to do something or to show you something so that you exercise faith? Or do you want him to be your satisfaction that illuminates your faith? If you are hungry for the bread of life, he will satisfy you if you choose to taste and see that he is good.